Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra, Ghana. You know, it's my other home. I'm going to say it every week when I'm here, just like when I'm in New York, but I just got to say it because it's where I am. And my guest is coming to us from a bit up north. I'll let her tell you where she is. She is a Black feminist researcher, writer, and curator. She holds a PhD in Gender Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, an MA in Women's History from Sarah Lawrence College, and a BA in Anthropology and African American Studies from Rollins College. Her practice builds on theories of racial, gendered, diasporic, and queer formation, Black feminism, Black studies, and her previous experience working at the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture. In her creative approach to knowledge production, she uses archives, ethnography, photography, film, and the imagination to curate programs and visual narratives, write essays, and performance pieces exploring the gendered and diasporic dimensions of Black being and becoming. She also creates ancestral altars using family pictures and memorabilia, found photographs, and archival images, West African textiles and wood carvings, crystals, fossils, stones, shells, and other curios. These practices converge in her forthcoming monograph, Amy Ashwood Garvey and the Future of Black Feminist Archives and Cared Research Fellowship at the National Maritime Museum, Curating Archives of Affect, Black Feminism Pasts, Presents, and Futures, as well as an ongoing visual series, Becoming the Archive, Blackness, Gender, Diaspora. Alongside her practice-based research, she works as a curator of learning at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London and is a member of Feminist Review's editorial collective and the curator of programs. Nadia Swabi, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for the welcome and thanks for that reading of my bio. It's something about hearing someone else read your work that's kind of like about what you do that's kind of exciting. I was like a bit flattered and humbled. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh, yay. That's, that's so cool. I know, right? It's like you put it, you just never hear it. So it's kind of like, ah, yes, you are a star. We are. <laughs> thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here to speak with you. It's going to be great. Yay. Thank you. And thank you for accepting and making time. So Nadia, tell us where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay, cool. So where am I from? I am Jamaican-American. Both of my parents are of Jamaican heritage. They migrated to the United States as teenagers. I was born in Chicago, spent a bit of my childhood in New York, but spent my most formative years living in Orlando, Florida. So I definitely identify as Jamaican-American, but I much more see myself increasingly as a part of a broader Black diaspora, in large part because I've been living for nearly a decade in the United Kingdom, specifically in London, where I came to do a PhD at SOAS, as you mentioned, in 2012, and then stayed for love, but also because of, of work, but stayed because my partner was from the UK. We'd met before I started my PhD, and I've and we've sort of built a life here and I've sort of stayed living in London. But that really, I think being here and being around like Black British communities and also Black communities that are of another part of the African diaspora in the same way that I am, that's a part of being like descendants of migrants from the Caribbean or of like from the continent of Africa. It sort of expanded the way I situate myself as a part of a broader diaspora. So I claim American in a different type of way now that I did in the past. It's just one of my multiple fluid diasporic identities that frame the way I live. Even now, I would say, you know, because of my relationship with my partner, who is Ghanaian and I've spent an increasing amount of time in Ghana. I feel like 
Accra has become a part of my home as well. So I feel like where am I local? It's a little bit of London. It's a little bit of Accra. It's when I'm back in New York. It's when I'm at home in Orlando with my mom. It's very much about like situating my sort of subjectivity as a Black woman that's a part of, that's connected to all these different spaces where Black people live and thrive. And what's my craft? Yeah, I think at the heart of my work is very much driven from this perspective of being a Black woman from a migrant and working class background. And it's structured the, my approach to being a Black feminist and the way in which I view feminism as very much being about Black women's subjectivity, about advocating for Black women's right to live like livable and happy future and present lives. And so that is a driving force behind my craft in the sense that it drives the kind of work that I do as a researcher. I have done archival and ethnographic work around Black feminist organizing in Britain, in the United States. It's also very much international in scope in the sense of, you know, as you mentioned, I'm working on a biography about Amy Ashford Garvey, who was a Pan-African woman who was married to Marcus Garvey. She was from Jamaica. You know, she was born in Jamaica. She lived in the United States. She lived in England. She spent time in West Africa. So that very much structures, I think, the way I think about my craft as well when I talk about being kind of thinking about myself in a broader diasporic sense. So that structures my research, the things I write about. I write speculative writing, practice-based, like performance pieces that are sort of drawn from my response to different archives, Black women's archives that I work with. And also as a curator, I do live programs and also increasingly trying to do like curating stuff around performance and curating kind of educational programs that give people different entry points into what I think of as Black feminist knowledge production, which emerges not only in like the academic context, but also in the form of Black women's poetry and Black women's literature and Black women's performance and art. So really like the thing that drives my curatorial work, and, and I think my work as a researcher and a writer, is thinking about how Black women's very living advances this idea of like Black feminism as a, as a body of scholarship and as a way of being and living in the world. So yeah, that's what I would say is my craft. Mm, mm. <laughs> it's always so nice to talk to I want to say academics because you're you're an academic, but you're also in the practical world. But you've so succinctly, you know, decided and put in place your thought process around and being very deliberate about the work that you're doing and how you intend to impact the lives of others. And so in coming to that as a young woman before moving, you know, abroad, how did you determine that this was what you, the direction that you wanted to mm. go into? Like, where, where were the roots of that? How did you, how did you get mm. to that That's point? such an interesting question. Because I think we don't often think about, like, our genealogy or, like, our kind of personal background mm. in the way that you're asking, as like, especially as academics, as being so central to the research and the work that we do. And I think as Black women academics, oftentimes you come to a point where you're sort of challenged on whether or not your research is valuable because it can be, especially if you do work on Black women or Black feminism, because people are like, well, is that not just looking at the personal? How is that academic work? How is that research work? Like, how is that really, you know? But for mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. the things that have structured my path is very much like, as, you know, growing up in a single parent migrant working class home, the kinds of things that my mom, the limited resources that my mom had and the way she exposed me to things as a result of that, because libraries were free, there were always activities happening at the library, spending time with books, borrowing books from the library was such a critical and important pastime that my mom could give to us with having limited resources. So reading, you know, the things that really drew, inspired me and framed my thinking was like early engagements with the work of Toni Morrison, with Alice Walker, with Jamaica Kincaid. Like it was very much literature and the writing mm -hmm. of Black women that gave me a way of thinking about other experiences that were not my own, but that were very much connected to my lived reality and understanding of myself as a Black woman and as, as a young person. And then, you know, that kind of builds up to me that sort of being in the background of a broader interest in 
studying and understanding the experiences of other Black women, such that by the time I was studying anthropology as a BA student at Rollins College, I was particularly interested in looking at the way that Jamaican Americans and Jamaican American women in particular engaged in kinds of code switching. Because I grew up with, you know, hearing my mom speak one way in the home. And if she answers the house phone, she might, her, her, just her mm-hmm. whole way of speaking or calling my mom at work, knowing my mom spoke Pachuan, a certain type of way of speaking at home. And then calling my mom at work and hearing her speak to me and then talk to her colleagues in a different type of accent. And so I really had this sense that, you know, Black women are mm-hmm. always, I think people who are migrants in general are engaged in a kind of code switching and a kind of sense of, you know, thinking of W.E.B. Du Bois's idea of double consciousness, where, you know, you like have a recognition that there are like multiple versions of yourself that you're drawing on at any moment. So by the time I am, a BA student, and I'm reading some of this stuff that has a theoretical grounding. I'm like, this is my life. It's just the way that I've grown up. So it mm-hmm. meant that then I wanted to mm-hmm. like think about my culture and think about my background as a space that was worthy of academic investigation. So, you know, my first kind of studies was around being a Jamaican, being a migrant, and the way in which we engage in different forms of code switching and like how we navigate our kind of cultural in-betweenness. And then that sort of picked up that by the time I was a master's student, I had grown up hearing so much about Garveyism and Marcus Garvey and as being a national hero. And I just thought, oh, it'd be interesting to like read about like women in the Garvey movement, you know, like to, to write my dissertation on like, just thought, oh, that's the thing I could research a little bit more about like women in the Garvey movement. And it was through reading more about those books that I learned about Marcus Garvey's first wife, who's not the one that is largely recognized. You get Hugh Hugh Martin more about, much more about Amy Jacques Garvey that I like wound up hearing about her life and her history and her story. And like it very much, you know, all the things that she went through, the way in which she was a leader of the Pan-African movement, the fact that they were, her and Marcus Garvey divorced and separated, like the journeys and the travels that she went on, it became, it opened up me to thinking about other opportunities I might have for my life as well. London became something that was available to me, even though I had cousins who lived in London, it became available to me because of my research on Amy Ashford Garvey. I had to come to London to do research in an archive on her life because she spent time living in the UK and it was when I came here that I started, I looked around and thought, oh, like London could be a place for me as well. And I then decided to apply for a PhD to study in London. And I was particularly interested at that point in thinking about the Black migrant women who would have migrated or come to the UK at a time that my mom would have migrated to the United States and understanding the conditions and the context of their life as a, being a part of the diaspora that I'm a part of. So that informed the PhD research that I did. And I wound up doing work around Black women's organizing in the UK from like, you know, the 1970s to the present. And it was about also wanting to be a part of a Black feminist movement that was longstanding in the UK, but also wanting to be a part of the different activists and community organizing that was happening at the time. So that was very much, you know, framed in my PhD. If you see what I'm saying, it all sort of built on like a kind of very personal, mm-hmm. you know, very personal trajectory. And then now I have the privilege to be in a space where I'm getting to return to that early research I did on Amy Ashford Garvey, to write a book about her. And I think this book very much reflects both her archive and her story, but also my work as a researcher and trying to tell her story and the places it's taken to me. So there's a bit that's historical and then there's a part that's autoethnographic. Mm. As you know, Florence, when we met, I was sort of in Ghana doing mm-hmm. a bit of research on Amy Ashford Garvey's time, you know, the time that she spent living there. Mm-hmm. So the book is also about the places that I went to to find out stories about her, because I think that is just as important to the research and to the excavation of her story about like the lengths that one has to go through to, or in order to tell the story about a woman like her, whose life is sort of at the margins of history, but is so central to Black diaspora study, to Pan-African study. To tell a story about her is to tell a story about so many things that frame my life as a Black woman, that it feels like weaving in and out between my journey as a researcher 
the places I've had to go to to tell her story and also talking about the places she had to go to as a Black woman to be the activist that she was. They've become deeply interconnected. So for me, I think, you know, you often hear feminists talk about the personal being political. And I think that very much resonates with the way that I live about like Mm -hmm. the personal being political and the personal being professional, like very much the work that I do is entangled with the, like my broader freedom dreams as a black woman. You know, I often say person, I want to say people, I want to work as fully who I am. Anything that pays me, I want it to be based on who I am. I don't want to have to fit into a box. I don't want to have to be different than who I am. I want to speak in the way that I speak. I don't want to have to fit into a framework of what it means to be professional. Like I jokingly say, I want to be just a professional black woman. That's just me coming in embodied who I am at all times. And I feel fortunate to be in this place right now where I can yes, have jobs in institutions, but I can also be in them, but not of them and really focus on the work that I'm doing to create. I mean, frankly, I I hope that my work is creating a kind of broader, safer, more creative and imaginative world for other Black women like myself. But I'm hoping that I'm doing that through my research by drawing out the stories of Black women whose lives have been at the margin, but who are so central to the way that we live today. Mm, mm, mm. I love it. And the thing you said is just the freedom to be and and be who you are wherever you are, right? Because that is that is often a, a huge challenge when we work for others or with others. And I I want to ask you a little bit more about biography. So when I was in graduate school, I happened on a project, a biography project with one of my professors. And so we went on this journey all through graduate school. And then after, unfortunately, he passed away during the process of creating it. He was the writer, I was the researcher, right? So I had access to all of these archives. And the the subject was Robert Weaver, who was the first Secretary of HUD, first Black cabinet member. He was the Barack Obama before there was Barack Obama. You know, he was the first of, of those things. And so what I loved about the work and what kept me intrigued is that I don't know what it was about him or who he was, but he kept immaculate records. Like we had a room, rooms, you know, part of the work was going into his apartment and basically taking everything out, moving it out, sending things to his family. But it had letters from, you know, four presidents, five presidents. It had, you know, books of clippings from the 1940s through the 1980s, right? So it was all this information. And so as he was writing it, I was kind of, you know, challenged with kind of understanding how do you go about writing a biography when you have all of this potential information? And, but then you, you don't necessarily have the person, right? Like you don't have the personal, the person to, to talk about that. So I feel like I love the way that you're going in the direction of kind of bringing it to this, the kind of autobiographical sense in terms of how you came about doing it. And so in terms of preparing, what kind of things have you done to prepare for writing besides, you know, looking through the archives, but, but prepare for writing mm. a biography? That's a really good question. Well, I think one thing, maybe this is sort of stating the obvious, but I just spent a period of time reading the work of other Black women biographers who are writing biographies about other Black women, mm. you know? So I think the one that comes to my mm-hmm. mind right now immediately is Imani Perry's biography about Lorraine Hansberry. And I think mm-hmm. besides the fact that I just think Imani Perry's writing is incredible and I think Lorraine Hansberry is a really important figure, I understood that Imani Perry also had a particular type of um, engagement with Lorraine Hansberry's story in her archive, a kind of personal sense of connection to it that I was like, oh, that's that's a kind of voice that I want to like be able to bring into the work as well to think about how Amy Ashford Garvey's history overlaps with my own. And that's not necessarily the book that Imani Perry has created in the end. It's something that I know from the basis of the way she's talked about it in kind of public talks about working on the book. But one thing I did for sure was just to be in 
conversation with other biographies that are, are about Black women. So I can be a part of the understanding of the craft. And I should say not biographies, but also autobiographies, you know, mm-hmm. because I think it's also too important to sometimes hear the way Black women have talked about their own lives so that I can think about how I can pay attention to the fact of, as you say, how do I write about the life of someone who's not here to tell that story and to try to like navigate that tension between my voice and their voice. It's not to say that I have their voice, but to also get into a life world of thinking about how would Amy's want her story to be told. So in one way, it's about really researching different methods and approaches to this kind of craft to writing biography. And I think the other has been to approach her archives with a kind of a kind of emotional approach to it. And what I mean is to not just like read it for what it is factually there, but to like feel what is there. You know, there are certain times where when I, mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular mm-hmm. about like reading mm-hmm. some of the papers, some of the letters she's written to some of her friends towards the end of her life. And she is in financial difficulties. She's disappointed that this is her life as someone who's been involved in the, the, the formation of the, the UNIA and that goes to be the largest membership organization for transnational membership organization of all time. And it had all these black people, it's so influential in the black liberation movement. And to come to the ending point of her life where she has no money, she's struggling to pay her bills, you know, and she's sad about this and she's quite depressed. And there's like, there's a sense of like reading that in her letters, but I've been trying to like, not just read it in the letters, but to like be with that feeling of like what it might've been like to come to this point in your life and to feel like you've made so many sacrifices for a movement that you don't always feel loved you back. And how do I use that emotion Mm -hmm. of disappointment? Because we've all felt disappointment Mm -hmm. to write about the disappointment and the types of sacrifices women like her made for a movement, a movement that was fundamentally patriarchal, that fundamentally undermined and erased the stories Mm -hmm. of black women, to write about that sense Mm -hmm. of disappointment from the space of the times I have felt disappointed on my own from life not turning out to give me the things that I thought I was going to get by working hard. You know, as a migrant kid, my mom would also often say things like, you have to work three times as hard as them. And if we know who the them are in that sort of narrative. And I reached a certain point in my mid thirties where I realized that that's actually not true. Like I can work three times as hard, but there's structural racism, there's sexism. There are all these things right. that become barriers. And so I understand that disappointment of hard work doesn't always manifest into the things that you hope, even when you try your hardest, even when you feel like you've earned it. And so that's something that I tried to like draw into my writing around her is to remember her humanity and like to try to draw on my own human experience and trying to narrate that. And that's where I think the idea of the speculative and the imagination comes into the work that I do, you know. And I guess even more than just imagination, it's about feeling. It's about using those types of sentiment and emotional feelings to try to tell her story. And so I think one and a good example of that, too, would be like when I was in Ghana, one of the things Amy Ashford Garvey did was had a naming ceremony. So when she was a child, let me go back a little bit. When Amy Ashford Garvey was a child and in Jamaica, she learned from her grandmother that her grandmother had been on one of the last slave ships from West Africa to the Caribbean. And her grandmother was able to tell her the area that she was from, Uaben, that she was a Shanti and like told Amy all this stuff. So she, from that point in her, her life until, you know, she grew up in years later, the first time she goes, you know, to West Africa is in the forties. She has this like dream of this diasporic return of this sense of connection of finding her ancestors. And so for me, it felt like to tell that story, like I wanted to almost like walk in her footsteps. So I was like, oh, she had a naming ceremony. She got a new name. She did all that stuff. So I was like, okay, I will do a naming ceremony. Now this is like a very common thing that people of the African diaspora are getting opportunities to now do to go back to doing Ghana. But it felt like, let me have my own naming ceremony so I can get into that kind of emotions of what that might've felt like for her Mm -hmm. to have Mm -hmm. that kind of sense of homecoming and then use 
the feeling that I had from doing that and the way they welcomed me and what it felt like to have the kind of ritual and ceremony aspects of it, to be dressed in kente, to think about her having that same type of experience and use, like to be able to describe like the chills on my body that I felt at certain points, to think about her in that same space. So it's been, that's why I think autoethnography has become a critical way for me to write her biography in the sense of trying to replicate some of the things that she did. You know, I went to that village that she went to, I tried to speak to, I had very amazing conversations with people that where her legacy is held in oral histories, even if it's not held in an archive that's at Mancha Palace, the story of her being there was held by the linguist, you know? So there are are ways in which like, you know, I was able to still, but I would not have gotten to that if I was approaching the traditional way in which you might approach biography, which is to go to the archive and look for the source. But by approaching it from saying, Mm -hmm. let me try to like walk through her footsteps, if you will, that allowed Mm -hmm. for me to, to experiment with the idea that quite often Black women's stories and our histories and our archives are contained in memory, they're contained in things that are much more ephemeral. It's not always going to be in like a traditional archive where you go and it's just like records and records and sheets, even though I think there are stuff that I'm fortunate to have collected. But with her story, it's much more about trying to follow her path, if you will, try to be in the places that she is, try to live. Mm. You know, I spend time going to the area Mm -hmm. in London that she lived in, walking up and down those streets, try to imagine what it was like in the 50s. I look at a lot Mm -hmm. of photographs from where she grew up in Port Antonio, Jamaica as a child. And I'm hoping to go to Jamaica in a bit to visit the area where she would have lived, just to try to use, I guess, feeling and embodiment as a part of the way in which to tell the biographic story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. So thinking about place, um, I want to ask my why the where question. So we know that you ended up in London because of school, but you live in a specific place in London. So how did you come to be living, working and playing where you live? Mm, That's that's a very good question. I think it is very much connected to the idea of being a part of a Black diaspora. So um, when I first would come to London to visit my partner after we met when I'd come to do research for my master's in 2011, then we were in a bit of a long distance relationship and he was living in South London, just outside of the Brixton area at the time. And so when we would come, we would often go on dates in that kind of Brixton area. And for me, Brixton felt like Crown Heights or bed New York. It felt like an area that I spent as a child. It felt, you know, that walking through the areas, the kind of Caribbean markets, the Caribbean food, the shops that you can pop into, the presence of hearing reggae and Afrobeats like that. It just, it felt very much like the home that I knew in New York. And it also felt like, you know, mm-hmm. it's rich with the kind of history of Black people's presence in this country. You know, one, this, one of the stories that they, even though Black people were present in Britain long before the arrival of the Empire Windrush, one of the stories that you often hear is that after they arrived, they many of them wound up living in the Brixton area because there was a housing place in Clapham, which is kind of South London as well, where they could go and get access to certain types mm-hmm. of housing. So Brixton became a kind of thriving Black British area because African Caribbean migrants were migrating here and this is where they could get housing. And so it feels like to stay in this area and be a part of that, like that history of that continued in history of like black migration, especially at a time where the area of Brixton is going through so much gentrification and to the extent that black people who've grown up in the area cannot afford to live there. It feels like I don't want to be another one of those gentrifiers. I don't want to be a part of that as well. But at the same time, I want to be a part of the continuing sense that this is an area that's a black community. This is an area where black people settle and live and thrive. And I think the other part of it in a kind of funny way, we now live a little bit out of Brixton because it's so expensive. It's become so overpriced because of gentrification. We couldn't actually buy a property in the area when we were able to purchase. We're in Stratham, which is just outside of it. But Cobb and I had a joke where we said, that's my partner's name. We had a joke where we said, we have a 30 minute plantain rule where we have to be able to leave our house 
<laughs> come back in it with plantain in 30 minutes. <laughs> it's imperative. We were like, because that's a food staple. And that's how I know I'm in a place where my people are. If I can walk out of my house and go get plantain and be back home to fry it in 30 minutes. Yeah. That is a place that's for me. That is a space where I feel like my culture and the way that I want to live is represented. So that's how we decided to buy a property, but it's also about wanting to like live in an area that I think represents the kind of the black diaspora space that I want to be a part of while living in this country. Sure. Sure. I love that. A 30 minute answer. Real. <laughs> so, so just side note, how's your kelewele? Have you, have you um, mastered a kelewele? I haven't recipe? mastered it. Kavna <laughs> is the kelewele cook in our house, but I do make the red red. I make the beans. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. and the other day I said yeah. to him, Oh, do you want to like make the red red? He's like, you know, I think we've decided like how you decided I'm the plantain maker in our marriage. I think you, you make the beans. Like I just don't make it. You make the best. So it's like, you know, I've got, and it's his mom's recipe, but I, so I will say I'm quite proud of that. But I've given up. I've revoked the plantain frying because I've discovered that he's way better. Plantain is a real art. Frying is a real art. And Kelly Willie is getting the seasoning to stick to it, it without it being burnt is also an art. Exactly. It's Yeah, it's very involved. I have I don't eat fried food, so I have my own roasted Kelly recipe, which is still an art because you have to put enough of, you know, like the nonstick oil on it so that it sticks and so that it still tastes good. But I think I've come up with a pretty good. Yeah, you'll have to give me that recipe because I also (laughs) don't necessarily enjoy fried food. We just were thinking maybe we try to do it in our air fryer this weekend. So, okay. So you have to give me a recipe after this. Yeah. Okay. I will. I will. It's so interesting you say Brixton because I just finished a book. It's called Girl, Woman, Other by. Bernadine yes. Everisto. And it really like echoes a lot of the things that you're you're talking about in terms of like the feminism and and understanding. So I, I bring it up because what was central to that was the idea of of women, particularly um, British black women, juxtaposed against, you know, one of the storylines was that one of the women moved to the US and, you know, had this, you know, wonderful, not so wonderful affair with a woman that, you know, didn't work out. But so tell me a little bit more about your experience with finding your sisterhood in mm. the UK and 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 just how, how that has evolved. Yeah, through. that's a great question. First, I think it's it's interesting that you bring up um, Girl, Woman, Other that you just read it, because incidentally, that book and um, Bernadine Evaristo's work is connected in a way to this story of like how I've found my own sense of sisterhood in the UK. And I say that because mm-hmm. a few years ago, I was involved in a, a Black feminist curatorial collective called The Politics of Pleasure. And one of the events that we had was where we had a, a kind of in conversation with Bernadine Evaristo. So I was in conversation with her about Girl, Woman, Other, and it was just before she wound up finding out that she was shortlisted for um, Booker. So it was a, it was like a kind of interesting coincidence that you bring that up. And so I, I mentioned that to say that book was, you know, I think it's, it's a part of the kind of relationships that I wound up generating that has lo- that I think has been through forms of Black feminist creativity and collaboration, meaning that that particular group mm-hmm. of women that I worked with at the time, Ifanya Awachie and Rita Gale, we kind of wound up coming together from these different uh, spaces where I, Rita had come to an event that I did one time where I was talking about my PhD research and she'd come to it because she'd read an article that I had written about my PhD research and she was like thinking with it in her PhD. So she came to that talk and I was like, I really love your talk. I would love to connect with you sometime. And so then and just talk about ideas. So we met to talk about ideas. And then she's like, you really have to meet my friend Ifani. She's Nigerian American and she's here. And you talk a lot about like how living in the UK is ex- you both have a similar thing about how living in the UK has expanded your sense of being a part of this broader diaspora. So you all must meet. And then we happened to one time, Rita and I go to another Black feminist 
program that was where a, a black feminist, black British scholar in the UK named Gail Lewis was having a public talk and Afani happened to be there. And so then we, then we wound up like connecting and then it was through at that talk, Gail was talking about black feminism, opening up a space for play and thinking about black women having a right to playfulness and pleasure and that our sense of black feminism and the way in which we approach it doesn't always have to be driven from the space of oppression, but that it can also be about our right Mm. to joy, to happiness, to playfulness. Mm. And it was through that talk that she said that day, we were just discussing that afterwards and how much that resonated with us that we're like, oh, we should try to do a program that picks up on this thing that Gail said about this and like let's or maybe like do some study and thinking around it. So we individually started studying around black women's pleasure and brought in these different articles and like reading it together and thinking together. We started reading like the work of Joan Morgan, Crunk Feminist Collective, Brittany Cooper, who are all these sort of like black American feminists who've been thinking about pleasure and black women's pleasure. And we wanted to like bring that thinking into a black feminist space in the UK, even though there were lots of people doing pleasure activism. And that's not to say that we were unique in it, but we wanted to like bring that as a part of saying that we don't always have to come together as Black women to talk about the difficulties in our life, even though that's present. But it's also about our right to joy, mm-hmm. and our right to happiness and playfulness. Mm-hmm. So for a while, we worked together. And I think, you know, that very much created a space where I would get to interact with new Black fem- Some people that like new young Black women I'd never met before. Sometimes it would be Black feminists I knew from my political organizing mm-hmm. days when I first came to the UK and I was involved in a collective called Black Feminist UK. Like, it would be like sometimes women would come to that and be like, I saw you doing this thing. And I thought, oh, it'd be really interesting to see what work you're doing here. And so Mm. there's a lot of relationships and friendships that came out of that moment where now we don't work together as a politics of pleasure anymore. We've all sort of gone into different directions, but I'm surprised how sometimes I'll go to an event or I'll be invited to do a talk. And then I get on the phone with the person and we're talking. I'm like, oh, I just want to know like why you invited me to do this particular thing. And they'll say, oh, I came to this politics of pleasure event or, oh, I saw you give this thing that you did for politics of pleasure or, oh, I came to this other talk where you were talking about this, about black feminists in in Britain and how, what you've learned from it. And I wanted to like work with you on this thing. And so it's been so much, a much of my, I would say so much of my way I found sisterhood has been through here, through creativity and collaboration. And the collaborators that I have are also become dear friends, you know? So I work with another artist, Barbie Asante. I've collaborated with her on some of her different performance pieces, including a declaration of independence. And then she had another project that's slipping my mind right now that was at Kettle's Yard last summer. And, you know, we have a kind of ongoing dialogue around our share practice so that sometimes she'll invite me to be the person that responds to a new set of films in dialogue with her. And then like, you know, she's helping me work on some stuff that I'm curating for my fellowship that I'm having at the museum. And it's very much, I think it's, it's been a very supportive space because quite often I have felt, I don't use the word imposter. I don't use the phrase imposter syndrome anymore, quite to say, to define that, that tension that you sometimes feel as like black women when you're in certain spaces. Cause I'm like, it's not imposter syndrome. It's me trying to survive like racism and sexism and trying to be like, my work is still of value mm-hmm. and how the challenging of that can sometimes be unsettling. But that unsettled feeling, I think being the, the way in which I have navigated that as a black woman academic has been through relationships with other black women academics and creatives. And so it has been incredibly restorative. You know, it's been incredibly grounding in many ways to grow as a writer, a scholar. And, you know, I, I increasingly now referring to myself as an artist, the, the confidence of taking on that title has come as a result of working with other black women who are like, Maddie, that's an art. That's your, yeah, that's your craft. That's your practice. Own it. Mm-hmm. So I found it to be a very, you know, I, I, I could just like prattle off the list of like the black women in this country who have informed and inspired my work, who've been so instrumental to me. Mm-hmm. And it's been 
so important for me to have those relationships and friendships. And I'm like forever grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. 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 So let me take a side swipe before I get back into a little bit of the business, because one thing that you mentioned about being an academic, there, there is that business side of it. Like, how do you, you know, make sure that you're making a living, et cetera, et cetera. But before we talk about that, let me ask you about your global speak. We want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global mm. speak. So I looked at this question in advance because I was like, I wonder if you'll ask me this one in particular. And I think the phrase that just kept coming up for me or the, the, the term that kept coming up for me, and I don't say it perfectly because I don't have a Londoner accent, is this idea of in it, in it, or people yeah. say in it. <laughs> as a way of saying isn't it and there's something about that phrase that like it's the one thing I feel that is like a part of made me the fact that it's just a part of my parlance so effortless now has made me like oh I've become a Londoner because it's not something mm-hmm. that it's like I don't say tomato I still say tomato there are like so many other things that I just are not a part of my language yes. but because that is a specifically black diasporic like slang and phrase that I understand comes apart from the fusion of like Patwa, and you know, it's a part of that. It's 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 patwa yeah. with a London twang to it. And there's something about that being a very diasporic, black diasporic term or way of speaking that I felt called into that it's become a way of me affirming something when I want to affirm it from a space of being like, oh yeah, I recognize that too because I'm also a Londoner. So it's become a way of me, like I don't just use it willy-nilly. I only say it to other Londoners, and I'm saying it as a way of affirming what you just said. And it gets a laugh out of it, like, oh, you really got what I mean. And it's like a way of me connecting to the specificity of the story that they've just told me, that it's a broader story of diaspora, but it's specific to being Black in this in this country at this moment, you know? So that's a thing. That's one I think is the one I've taken up the most. I love that you said that because just my last guest that I was speaking to, she's in London and she's new to London. And I said, oh, well, what, what's your local speak? And she said, oh, I had a thing. I was like, I have one. And it was in it. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like that if I lived in London, that would be my, because I, I absolutely agree with you. It is that kind of, I feel like I'm a part of you when I use this because it is that, you know, local everyday lingo that is a meaningful part of that experience. So <laughs> thank you for that. So the business of being oh, an boy. academic. You <laughs> <laughs> see how I changed my voice, the business. Yes. So, so tell us, okay. So you, you know, I know that it's academic career trajectory typically includes, you know, teaching and writing and things like that. And, and so you are a bit of um, kind of a little bit more than that because you're Mm -hmm. in the art space and you're also in the academic space. So tell us, give us some insights into how do you fund and stay, you know, solvent in terms of, you know, being able to buy that home, being able to, you know, contribute and and just feel like empowered economically Mm. as an academic in a country Mm. that's not your own, right? Because there's also that aspect of it. Tell us more about that, that aspect of that's like, it's funny, that question in part, because just this week, I was in a text exchange with another Black American woman academic who's done her PhD in the U.S. She's she's actually got Ghanaian heritage as well. And we connected because she'd seen me as listed on the SOAS's website as a PhD student there. And she contacted me to say, I'm interested in coming there but I want to do a PhD, but I want to know what your experience has been there as a Black American woman. So we met before she applied for SOAS. Like I helped her with her application and so on. Kirsty Koratang is her name, so I should say it. So I gave her out here. And so we were just in a conversation recently where she's finishing up 
And she had just applied for a job and she got the job opportunity. And she, we were just talking about salaries being really low. She's like, does this like seem low to you? Or like, are they lowballing me? She's just asking me. And we were in this conversation where I had to be like, you know, the thing I, I realized is that one, the academic jobs in the UK pay significantly less than academic jobs in the US. Now I recognize that the cost of living in the US can be higher for a variety of reasons from, you know, what the things cost when you go into a CVS from having to pay for your own insurance, like, like there are other costs of living, but there's something mm-hmm. about the kind of financial value that's placed on being an academic or being an educator in this country that I think is very, very low comparatively. That's the first thing I will say. So we wound up in this conversation around like how to navigate that. And I was saying to her, I think you you have to approach it in the way that I've approached my first job after my PhD is like, this is just a stepping stone. It's not, this is not going to be the job that pays my bills or sets me up for the future that I want. I have to just make this job work for me for a certain amount of time and make it stretch in certain ways. And I have to also be developing my own practice and my own self alongside of that. So Mm -hmm. that has been, so that was the advice that I was giving to her. And I was like, but that is not something that is an easy thing that, and it doesn't come without another type of sacrifice. I had to say, it's meant that I spent a period of time where I was, I sometimes legitimately work seven days a week. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, you know, because in order to do all the different strands of my work, mm-hmm. but I was saying, but I'm doing that in the short term, because I believe that in a few years time, I'm going to be in the place where I will be able to say, I work exclusively at, for myself independently as a black feminist academic and a researcher. And these are the different strands of projects. And I met, I determine my own time and how I do that. So right now I'm in phase two of taking that plunge in the sense that I got research leave from my job at the ICA. I applied for funding to be able to support my independent research project. I got this fellowship where I have like the space to be able to fund me working on this book. I worked with an editor for my book that paid in advance where most editors do not pay that. And like made a point, you know, fortunately Mm -hmm. my editor on this particular project that I'm a part of is a series with black women writers who are writing about other black women activists and organizers that were in the UK. And fortunately the editor, she understood the value of us being paid in advance for our labor, that we're not in the same position as some other academics, that that one of the main barriers to publishing for black women academics in particular is funding and money and access to resources. So I felt fortunate that I happened to get onto that Mm -hmm. project, but it's been very much I won't make it sound like it's easy at all. It very much feels sometimes like it's a hustle. Like I have to take on certain types of talks on the side to be able to make a little bit of extra money here. I have to have a kind of funding plan for how I'm going to fund my research when this fellowship ends in August, because I don't intend to go back full time working as a curator because it doesn't allow for my freedom dreams and the way that I want to work and the types of creative things that I want to do. So for me, it's been trying Mm -hmm. to develop other types of projects on the side that supplement my finances, but also make, create an opportunity for me to go independent in the way that I hope to full time in another, say, year or two years time where I can just have some projects that I'm curating at the ICA because I've developed it and I've initiated that. And so you can't detach me from that, but I'm not only employed here. This is a contract for me to do this. And then I have a little bit of money to do over here. And, you know, it's, it's tough because I feel like I'm working for my own and by myself in some ways, but I've really found taking a lot of support from the other Black women artists and creatives and curators who have been doing that ahead of me. So as I mentioned about the role of like having these kinds of collaborations, my friend Barbie Asante has had a successful career as a kind of Black feminist curator and artist where she's never had to be full-time in any institution, you know, and now she's in a place where she can be full-time in one academic job because she has all these other different strands that she's cultivated on her own. And I'm sort of like now trying to cultivate Mm -hmm. these other sorts of strands so that I'm not 
ever fully dependent on one place to pay my bills or one place for me to be the creative that I know that I am independently. And so it's not easy. Like, I'll be honest with you. I feel like it's, it sometimes might potentially be easier to have your standard nine to five job where I know that this is going to be my salary, but I have had to realize at what expense, what other things do I lose when I have that faux sense of, of stability? And that is the loss of, and I know this is very much a privilege. I want to acknowledge it. It's very much a privilege to be able to make this choice, you know, to be able to say, mm-hmm. I'm going to work on multiple different strands. I know for some people, like they need to have the stability of knowing I'm getting 2000 pounds per month, no matter what, or 3000 pounds or whatever that looks like for right. them. But I feel like right. I've been trying to kind of cultivate another way of living for myself because it's better for my mental health. It means that I can visit my family and mm-hmm. my, I can go back and be in Florida with my mom for a month on a whim if Mm -hmm. I want to, without Mm -hmm. having to ask an employer to go, that I can spend some time in Ghana when I want to be with my in-laws and I want to be there and be creative and be quiet in different ways. But it has meant that it's come with me having to look for my sense of stability, not in work, but more within myself and to try to build other Mm -hmm. types of financial stability for myself through, you know, other types of research projects on the side. So yeah, I think that's the way that I've had to do it is I've mm-hmm. had to really try to draw on the different strands of my skills and stitch together different stuff. I mean, even for a little bit, I was like a, a researcher on a black British game show that was about black British history, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, which is like, okay. but, but yeah. I, the, the opportunity came up. Someone asked me if I'd be interested in it. I was like, okay, great. And it was literally like for, you know, and I worked, I was going to the archives and like doing research and coming up with some of the stuff they could have for questions and looking for the images. And it's not that I necessarily have a strong desire to work in television, but it's one of my skills is I understand black British history. So why not take this opportunity to do that? And like, now I have that kind of credit to my name. So if later on I want that, I see another opportunity that comes up, I can go for it. And also my name is now in there as someone who can do that research and has that expertise. So it feels like that's something else I want to try to generate more of is being seen as not an expert, but someone who can, contribute to certain types of projects because of this expertise and being able to be brought into it as well. So it's been really being able to try to think of all of my different research skills as marketable, even though I hate that idea of marketable skills, but all of them are being things that I can (laughs) use to support my own creative practice, but while also fundamentally like giving back to a variety of black creative practices and communities. So watching that TV show, watching that game show happen and having cousins text me and be like, this is so cute. And I was like, I didn't write the questions. I just did the research. (laughs) I just did the research, but still it felt. I was going to ask, like, did the show come on? What was the name? What is the name of the show now? I can't believe I'm forgetting it. That's a little bit embarrassing. (laughs) Well, you'll remember, I'll put it in the show notes. So guys, go to the show notes. You'll know about the show notes. But I think this is a great segue into the mindset hack. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hacks? This is one that you could imagine or one that you know mm. of. Oh man, to be honest with you, it might sound like so simple, but like meditation has been such a critical part of like my mindset hack. Like I think mm-hmm. I often find that, and, and I mean meditation, not as always having to like sit in a quiet place for 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I right. mean, like yeah. just being yeah. meditative and, or maybe even just saying being mindful, mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes I'm like, I just need to step away from the desk and like breathe a little mm-hmm. bit and breathe into the space where I'm feeling the uncertainty about this thing that I'm trying to do. And like, let like breath be mm-hmm. a tool that helps me to move through it. Or sometimes it's movement, you know, like 
honestly, sometimes in the middle of the workday, I'm like alone in my apartment dancing to Afro beats for 30 minutes to just like free up some of my create, get my creative juices flowing. Yeah. So like a lot, a lot of that, like, so when I, it's, it's about, and I think maybe the way of saying it then is it's about getting back into my body and out of my, out of my thoughts. Maybe that's the mindset hack is remembering that, uh-huh. that my body is an important part of the way that I think and feel, you know, I remember one time I, I was giving a, a talk and talking about the way I use embodiment in my research and think about, you know, how the wind felt on my skin as I walked up to this archive to do research on Amy Ashwood Garvey being just as important to the story as saying what I found in the place, because that's a part of the excitement. And I had this student say, you know, I, I really like the way that you say that because I had a, a teacher, a lecturer who said to them, you know, academics forget sometimes that they have a body. We spend so much time in our head thinking and processing ideas that we forget that we mm-hmm. have a body. And that was definitely my experience. When I finished my PhD, I remember the day I submitted it. And like when I looked in the mirror the next day and for the first time, I didn't have to like think critically. Like I remember thinking I felt so skinny. I felt like I hadn't taken care of like myself, my skin. Like I hadn't taken care of the body, like my temple, the thing that houses and makes possible my ideas. And so placing great value on like my body as the vessel that makes possible everything else that I do, taking care of my health, eating well, meditating, Mm -hmm. taking time in the shower to just bathe myself and not plan for the day. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, like things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. have yeah. have become my mindset hack. That remembering that caring for my body is as important as thinking about the things that I need to do. And so that might mean that sometimes I go for a mindful walk, I meditate, I lay on my yoga mat and child's pose. It's like about sometimes coming out of my thoughts and coming into my body. And I found that as that has increasingly become a method of my research, it's become something that I've become even more clear that that's very important to me having a clear head and clear thoughts about the work that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. And it's so true. So true. Just before we got on the call, I just did yoga. And so, you know, I find the spaces and I was afterwards, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. For, I do it often, but, but particularly this morning, cause I had a little bit of a slow morning and, you know, the dust here is causing the allergies. And so I just have to kind of like figure out how to mind that, but yes, get into the body and just, make a piece out. So yeah, I like that. I like that. Thank you for that. So Nadia, what is your most exciting upcoming new thing that you would like to share with mm. the audience? I think it is probably this book that I'm working on with Amy, about Amy Ashford Garvey. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I do have the, the stuff that's coming out of my fellowship where I hope to make, you know, some moving image works out of the research I've done on the archives there. And I'm like excited about that in one way, but there's something about working on this book and what I think it might do for both telling Amy Ashford Garvey's story, but also thinking about methods for doing Black feminist research and Black feminist work in archives that I'm excited about. Not to say like that I'm necessarily advancing something new, but it's more to say about celebrating the fact that limitations in the archive doesn't limit what we can tell and the stories that we can tell. You know, that that we can find traces of Black women's stories in the margins of archives and that we can build on that because the knowledge of how we acquire that information and how we feel about doing that work, I think is just as important to her archive as the facts that were contained within it. And I think I'm particularly excited about that book because I'm excited to tell Amy Ashford Garvey's story. She was incredible. You know, she was mm-hmm. a, a woman who I think felt a lot and had a lot of grief and had a lot of passion. She had a lot of adopted children. She was involved in a lot of different important political struggles and movements. And I'm excited to tell her story because of that. But I'm also really excited to create, to talk about the way in which her story and doing her story has 
informed my own subjectivity as a black woman, as a part of the African diaspora, as a researcher. You know, that's sort of story how I said to you, I wound up in London because I came here to do research on her for my master's. And that completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I think so often when we create work, especially academic work, the way in which we are transformed as a researcher is so removed from the final product. And I think I want to bring those things. I'm really excited about bringing those two things together to say that not only is her story important to tell because she is important, but it's also important to tell it in this particular way, because I think we need to be more honest about how researching and studying people can transform your own understanding of yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, and yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I think, you know, she's, trying to tell her story has made me lean into being an artist and being a creative more. You know, I have long been a photographer. Mm. I've always been the one, you know, since high school to be the one to photograph our trips. I mean, I have all of the photos. Someone the other day texted me, do you have a high school from our senior class trip? Photo, I'm sorry, photos from our senior class trip. Cause I was the one who took all the photos, you know? And so like, <laughs> but it, it wasn't something I, and I've taken photography courses and what have you, but I've never thought about the right I would have to put my photos in a book. But because I'm doing this research on Amy Ashwood Garvey and I'm committed to trying to tell her story in all ways possible, the freedom that that has given, the permission, not even the permission, but the way it's her, she has affirmed for me that I should put photos of photos I found of her or I should include photos of me going to this area in that she would have traveled because that is a part of the story too. And that, so it's also create, you know, working with her has made me lean into my creativity more. Working on her life has made me lean into my creativity, thinking more about the work that I do as all significant to telling her story. And so I'm really excited to to complete the book. The writing has is not always easy. You know, I think anyone who's ever written anything mm-hmm. that is like, you know, quite long, I think from writing an essay to writing a book, that there's a kind of interiority mm-hmm. and isolation mm-hmm. that it requires that can be challenging sometimes. And you can get hypercritical over the words. Yeah. But the, what makes me so excited about doing is that I'm not just trying to do something with words. I'm also trying to do something with images. I'm trying to think about other ways. You know, I'm trying to make a moving image work alongside of it. So it's opened up other ways of telling her story. And I'm really excited about being able to finish the book and being on a launch series where I can show what's in it. But then also the other stuff I've learned about everything, you know, the, the things I've come encounter with, like even in Ghana alone, as a result of doing this research, the people I've met because of doing that work. And I'm excited to be able to thread all of that together and share that to, with the world later this year. Nice, nice. So when, when can we expect that? Well, originally it was supposed to be summer 2022, but, you know, life happens. Writing and being a creative in a pandemic has, you know, has, has really, so sure. it's supposed to be the end of this year. It's going to be published by Lawrence and Wishart. And so it should be the end of 2022. Okay, wonderful. So we're going to take just one side step to find out. You've given us a little bit of the flavor of Nadia that's not the academic or the curator, but share with us something that is I usually ask the question, are you a reader, a watcher, or a listener? I have a feeling you're all of them. But, <laughs> but please share with us some of your, your most interesting reads and watches and listens mm. recently. So I recently started this book by a Black feminist scholar called Catherine McCritchick that's called Dear Science. And what this book has done oh. for me is because it's a collection of ideas and observations she's been making throughout her academic career. And it's stitched. It's like an unconventional academic text. It's like citations, random musings, Mm. photographs, like, and so that book has been really exciting to read, you know, especially as I'm leaning into like the creative ways we can do academic knowledge production that has been really exciting to like be with and read. And so that's a book that when I have a day where I don't necessarily want to like do work, but I want to 
work, but yeah. do it in a more pleasured way. I'm like, oh, I just yeah. take this book and like go out to my garden and read it for a bit. And it still feels like I'm in the realm of, you know, creating knowledge. So I would say that is definitely one of them. I just finished listening. And I also am a massive audiobook person. I love listening to audiobooks. I just finished this morning, The Sex Lies of African Women. Oh, okay. I thought that book was incredible. I think for me, because it's a multiple, it's multiple little mini autobiographies, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. Nana Darkoa's writing and the way that she synthesizes these different stories and like the section she has in between where she talks about the chapters and what different themes she's exploring. And then it kind of comes to the end where she's talking about her own, how she couldn't write a book about the sex lives of other African women without incorporating her own. And so it just, ah, oh, it's just such a beautiful story. book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think just like exploring the, the multiple ways in which women of Africa and the diaspora experience sexual pleasure and also have the sexual experiences mm-hmm. that they've had that have made that difficult at times. And it's done in a way that is, it's just so beautifully written. And I think for me, listening it to it in audio book format where it's like the different, uh, I really love listening to audiobooks and like, I love speech, the audio actors. I like, I get really obsessed with one. Mm-hmm. I love Robin mm-hmm. Miles. Mm-hmm. There's certain, like, I get like, her voice. <laughs> or like, what's a Bonnie Turpin? Like there's certain authors where I'm like, you're reading something, yeah, I'm there, exactly. you know, like, I don't yeah, we're we're like we're yeah. the same ones. Right? Um, so that's you know for audiobooks, and then I also really like sort of experimental film because I'm also experimenting with hmm. moving image as a way of telling other forms of story. So recently, I was looking at films by S. Pearl Sharp, uh, L. Hmm. Frank Gilliam, and then there's Colleen Smith. Older films by like Barbara McCullough, and recently, what's her name? Akusua Odoma. She's a Ghanaian American filmmaker and she has some experimental films up on movie right now that's called her hair trilogy I'm sort of butchering her last name and I'm sorry for that but there were some of her films recently that I was really watching where she's like thinking about the like you know the the coloniality of say like the hair trade in Kumasi and stuff like that so there's Mm -hmm. and the way she tells Mm -hmm. these like very Mm -hmm. complex stories around black women and hair and the legacies of colonialism through like moving image and artwork I've just found a really really inspirational so I'm definitely like a and, and and I also watch like regular stuff too you know just yesterday when I was like okay I'm done with work for the day I watched Master which is a new movie by um directed by Mayama Diallo and it has Regina Hall is one of the lead actors I just love Regina Hall I think she's an incredible actor so even though I'm a little iffy on the whole genre of you know like let's make a a genre out of the horrific experiences of like being black on like a white university campus whatever I'm kind of kind of over that genre like you know Mm -hmm. it's there's been so many of them since Get Out came out that I found to be just, mm-hmm. for lack of a more nuanced way of saying it, trauma porn, which I just, I'm just like, this mm-hmm. one I found mm-hmm. it more nuanced. I watched it because Regina Hall is in it. And because I was like, it's a black woman director. Yes. I'm going to rate it. I'm going to watch it. But I found it to be like more nuanced and more attentive to that without it being fetishizing our pain in a particular way. And so, you know, I also watched those types mm. of films as well. Yeah. And one thing I'll have to say is I often return to Black classic films. I cannot tell you how often I've watched Daughters of the Dust. Mm, I've watched that so many times. And sometimes, honestly, when I'm writing and I need a bit of ambient sound, you know, the days where like if you're working on something, it's better to be in a cafe than be at home. But I sometimes can't leave my home because it's taking too many books. I might literally have Daughters on the Dust paying in the background because Ah, it's like the sound and the imagery and I can like get into the life world of that. And so there's certain, I think, yeah. And oftentimes reading, listening, writing, watching, they all lay on top of each other for me because they're all modes of creative expression. So yeah, those are the things I'm all kind of listening and being with at different times. We got rich 
show notes, folks, this week. So please, 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 please join us for that. So Nadia, thank you so much for joining us this week on the, the podcast. Do you have any last words to share with our You know, listeners? I think I would just say like, how much I have appreciated this opportunity to reflect on my work and my practice and my thinking with you, with another, like, you know, person, Black woman who has sort of like had this kind of global, local experience as well. And the kind of questions that you've asked have really made me think about how I situate myself in a way that I understand, but I don't always articulate. And I think I'm like, sort of, I just want to sort of say thank Mm -hmm. you to this for the opportunity and thank you to the listeners who are listening to this, it feels like it's been a really an honor to be in conversation with you and then like a great opportunity to reflect on how and why I do the things that I do. So I think that's the thing I would want to say is that I'm really appreciative for this opportunity. And yeah, thank Yay. you. Yay. And thank we, we all say thank you too. We're going to be looking forward to your books, all of your works. Again, show notes, show notes, show notes, folks. So uh, listeners, this has been another episode and I love that this is the culminating episode of our Women's History Month, Tribute to Women, Her Stories. I just love it. It's such a fitting conclusion. And we always love to have dynamic women, obviously. And we, you know, we like the men too, but <laughs> for this month in particular, we always like tribute to, to her stories. So you can catch this episode and every episode each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizens pod.com wherever you get your podcast please like share subscribe give us a review that would be great you heard Nadia say she watched it so she could rate it so please do that go to apple Podcasts, spotify wherever and rate the podcast that helps people find the content so until next time folks bye for now bye